early 2021, we've arrived at a point of conflict in our sport. It's a legitimate conflict, and it's one that we need to talk about and actually have a conversation about. And when I say legitimate, I mean it is an actual conversation, an issue that needs to be addressed, something much more so than the typical Twitter fights that we seem to have about bike racing. My least favorite example of which is the leg warmers and socks over or under argument, which I've jokingly equated to being the 30 years war version of cycling drama in the sense that it's completely unnecessary. It makes no sense from an outsider's perspective. It is a terrible bloodletting and it's something we just all got to get past. You know, we all pray before the same altar. So leg warmers under or over your socks, give it up. Who cares? But this topic is something we should care about. And this topic is bike racing in the United States during the time of COVID, during the pandemic. I'm Rob Kelly, and this is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. In Florida and in Texas, in 2021, racing has restarted. I'm sure there's underground racing happening elsewhere or in other types of bike racing as well. But in Criterium and in road racing, these are the two places where you've started to see pictures popping up on your social media and in results of people smiling, standing on podiums. In some cases, they've been wearing masks In some cases, the podiums have been strategically positioned to try to be six feet apart, but when your arms are touching, you're not six feet apart. What we lack right now is conversation about this. What we have is yelling. If you flash back to this past summer in 2020, you saw racing in Georgia, you saw racing in Texas, you saw racing in Indiana, you saw racing in Southern California. We had these outbursts of yelling and screaming about what is safe and what is not safe. But we don't seem to be having a dialogue with each other about what are the precautions that we need to take, what's reasonable, what's not reasonable. And that's where this conversation comes into place. When I first started speaking with the guys from Good Guys Racing back in November, we had a totally different vision for what Connor Dellenbank and my conversation would look like. Connor's from Antigua and Barbuda. He lived in England. He came to New York City. There was a variety of things that we could talk about. And in this interview, we do talk about those things to a certain extent. But you can't get around the fact that he's started racing. He started racing locally at the Brian Piccolo races in South Florida, where he now lives. Then he started broadening his scope to racing Gainesville and in other parts of Florida. So naturally, it begged the question of why are you doing this? What are your thoughts? How are you doing it in a way that you feel is safe? And I wanted to have this conversation in a respectful, polite, and appropriate manner. I don't want my opinions and feelings to become the issue here. I want him to be able to say what he's doing, when he's doing it, and why he's doing it. Because it's important for all of us to hear both sides of a debate. Adversarialism is not bad. Two sides arguing for the best path forward is typically how we end up with good compromise results and benefit all parties involved. The problem is when we get into our echo chambers and we just snipe and yell and nothing gets done and everybody starts to hate each other. I promise you there is a interview coming out in the next couple of weeks with Emma Bast and Dakota Top from Levine Law Group, which talks about their decision as a team not to race until they've been vaccinated. So we are going to feature both sides of it. For Connor's interview, I want to be very specific as an editor's note about why I did what I did and how I did it. It was super critical for me to allow his voice to be heard in its natural state. If you don't think that episodes of this show are edited or that there's a certain pace or tone that I like them to have, you don't see the work that goes into it. 
you know, each episode will take five times or six times as long, which is why I end up feeling like I'm friends with the interviewee by the time I get done with it, because I've spent 10 hours or 12 hours with their voice bringing things together. Or I try to cut out the ums and pauses and ands and verbal fillers that predominate in all of our normal speech. But for this particular interview, because I know that this is a controversial subject and people have feelings about it, I left that part of the discussion where we talk about his decision to race in as natural an environment as it could have been. I did remove a couple of things, like some lip-smacking sounds, because those drive me absolutely nuts. And if I listen to them 20 times, I will like actually have a visceral reaction to it and, and freak out. So those were removed, but the pauses, the ums, the times that you can actually hear him think, those are in there. Connor is an incredibly thoughtful and intelligent person, and he presents his points of view with in the manner that you would expect from such a person. And so it's key that you let him talk. It's key that you let him express his opinions and his ideas and why he's doing what he's doing, because he will do the same for you. He's conscientious, just like everybody should be when we talk about this topic, because nothing is going to change in the next 12 months. We will still all need to be with each other and around each other. And even when everybody's been vaccinated, and even when the numbers go back down to a level that is acceptable to everybody, we still need to live with each other. We are all just trying to do what we feel is best, given what we know. And as Connor points out, some of us live in echo chambers. And if we're not presented with the contravening ideas, the contravening points, the facts, we will never grow. So here is an opportunity for all of us to grow, to have the conversation that we need to have and that we've needed to have for a while and move on with it because bike racing can come back. It will come back. It's up to us to determine what it looks like when it does come back. But before we get to this interview, I want to talk about the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. It's the network that this show is a part of, it's the network that features some other incredible shows like Cyclocross Radio, The Slow Ride Podcast, Nowhere Fast, and The Grodio. We've got a bunch of great hosts who are churning out good, solid content. If you need a fix on Cyclocross Radio or on Cyclocross in general, the Media Pit turned out some incredible content over the last couple of weeks of the Cyclocross season. The guys on The Slow Ride Podcast, always with their hottest of hot takes, that are likely wrong, but those are things that I yell and scream about when I'm on my bike listening to them. Go on over to WideAnglePodium.com. Check out everything that's there to offer. Go to the YouTube channel. Check out the work that Bill Shikin is doing or Little Guy is doing. Check out all of it. And please consider becoming a member and supporting this content creator-owned and driven podcast network. So without further ado... Let's turn it over to Connor Dellenbank of Good Guys Racing. I'm Connor Dellenbank. I am from few places so as you can hear i have a british accent so i was you know, i was raised in the uk um i am a mixed race person meaning i'm my, i'm the son of a, a caribbean so antigua and barbuda is where my dad's family are from and my dad um and then on my mum's side she's irish uh, so i'm antiguan british and irish all at once uh so that's yeah that's kind of my background yeah, I race for Good Guys Racing of New York, even though right now I'm living uh, in Miami in Florida. Well, there's a lot of New Yorkers who find their way to Miami, so I'm sure you're in really good company right now. But I want to start first with kind of geography corner here, because a lot of people are going to sit there and go, is Barbuda Barbados? Are those the same <laughs> thing? So where are Antigua and Barbuda? Yeah, so it's a, it's a twin island nation. 
and uh, it's based in the Caribbean. And so we're in a string of islands, uh, you know, we're alongside, uh, we're close to places like Montserrat, you know, another, that's actually where my granddad was, was uh, born, funnily enough. And uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're part of the, um, the organization of Eastern Caribbean states. So, you know, from a, a cycling perspective, we get together with countries like Anguilla, uh, St. Martin, uh, St. Lucia, um, you know, a lot of kind of what you would think of kind of small to medium sized Caribbean islands. Um, and then when it gets to a, a larger level, you know, we also fall under the, the overall Caribbean or the West Indies, as, as we call it as well. And so we would compete uh, against in the Caribbean championships, the likes of the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, the larger countries, Jamaica, Cuba, and so on. So, you know, we're another Caribbean country, fairly small in terms of population, we're around 85,000 people. And uh, yeah, it's a, you know, formerly a, a part of the, the United Kingdom. And so that's kind of why a lot of people similar to myself, you know, our parentage is, is from two different places and a lot of our families, you know, are based between the two. So I've got, you know, very many aunties, uncles, cousins, and so on, uh, you know, on the islands. And then I've also got people back in the United Kingdom that are, uh, you know, exactly the same situation. They might be sort of British and Antiguan, similar to me. So we, we very much kind of, it depends who you speak to, but a lot of us kind of see ourselves as both. So even as a very young child, like, you know, long before cycling, I always thought of myself as Antiguan and Irish, even though I also know I'm British. So just when you're with your family on a Sunday, right, you're having, we'd be having very nice Caribbean food. So, you know, jerk chicken, we'd have plantain, rice and peas. Um, and that would be kind of how we would eat on a Sunday at, you know, my grandma's and my dad's house. And then the next weekend we'd be eating kind of ham and potatoes and cabbage at my, my, my Irish family's house as well. So it just completely depends by the week really where we are. As an Antiguan, Antigua is predominantly nowadays of African ancestry. I think the, like the vast majority of people are black Caribbean, but you identify as mixed race because your mom is, is white Irish. Do you find that to be kind of a unique thing among the people that you were growing up with, even when you were living in England? It's quite funny because here in the US, I see, I can tell that it's like not as common to be mixed race as it was for me growing up. Like I, 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 I was actually re- like initially raised in London. I also lived in the Isle of Man for a good, good 10 years, which is a part I, I didn't actually mention to you. But so when I was in London, it was totally normal to be mixed race. Like everyone kind of was a different shade of brown and we didn't really care about that. Like it was very much just, you know, one of our parents was usually black. Like, you know, a lot of our dads were and, you know, a lot of our mums were white. It was, you know, I think after the Second World War, there was a, a large influx of Caribbean people, you know, my family included, some of them at least, you know, we were moved because the, you know, the loss of life from the UK side and we were colonies or part of the, the Commonwealth and the empire, right? So we would bring people to back to the UK to get jobs and to work and flourish. So it was very normal for for me to be kind of mixed race. And then it was when I went to the Isle of Man, was in a much more white population. Uh, you know, I think there was, there was one other black person in my whole school. Um, I was seen as totally black, right? So in the eyes of people in that nation, it was kind of like, if you weren't white, you're black. And so... For me, I, I just kind of grown for one period of my life, I was totally unaware or kind of not concerned about race. And I realized race was really important. Kind of, I think the age of nine or 10 years old, you know, I, I had a lot of people giving at times me problems even for being a black person. And I, I got very used to the, like, the fact that this wasn't normal. And then it became normal again as an adult because I realized, right, like whatever you are, uh, is just what you are. And I really love that I'm a mixed person. To me, it's so awesome. Like I kind of mentioned at the beginning, the different food culture, you know, we have different music, we have different dancing. And I just, I totally embrace everything that I am, right? Like I I, I love speaking to my mum who has an Irish accent. I love speaking to my Caribbean family. And I just like that, you know, I, I am whoever I am. And uh, the, the more I kind of grow up, the, the more I definitely want to represent and show people, right, this is something we should all be proud of. And there's a beautiful country alongside other beautiful countries in the Caribbean where, right, Antigua, we call it the, the land of 365 beaches. So it's like there's a beach for every day of the year. That's one of the taglines you'll hear if you speak to people from there or kind of go down the tourist route. I, but then to to finalize that that answer, it's actually when I came to America, I realized that people that look like me often get confused for being Latino. And it's more often than not, people think I'm Puerto Rican or Dominican or Cuban. 
And if you look at the people from those nations, they're actually, a lot of them are, you know, there's, there's white European and the Spanish, and then there's, you know, African, West African mixed in, and there's also native um, Islander as well. So we do look similar. I get it. And it's just, uh, but I find that more often than not, people don't really know that I'm just a, what I think of as just a mixed race person in, in the UK's terms. How has it changed kind of now that you're in Miami? Here, well, it, I also speak decent level of Spanish and and I'm married to a, a Mexican woman. So it's actually, I, I guess I look Latino more than ever down here, right? So I'm, I'm tanned and I can, when I walk into somewhere, if someone speaks to me in Spanish, I'll just speak back straight away. And it's kind of like, I've probably ended up in in more of a latin place than i ever could um yeah again no one would ever assume that i was i don't think they would ever think i was a mixed race person here but again i, it's, I don't think it comes up that much now i think in miami more than anywhere i've well, i was living in new york before this and there it was very much you know a dominican or puerto rican was the first start question and here people just assume i'm just one of the other people that looks similar to me i guess you ride for good guys racing but you have a unique kit you have the most colorful i think of all the kits of the guys on the team because you are the antiguan and barbudan national champion that begs the question of what is bike racing like in the caribbean because i know some of us have done south american races or mexican races every once in a while you get somebody who's gone to puerto rico to race but you're the first person that I know of. Now, I've also heard of Erlen uh, as a result of learning about you guys, but you're the first guy I know of who's raced on one of the islands. What is it like? Firstly, it's awesome and everybody needs to do it. So <laughs> that's that's the first thing I'll say. And actually, uh, you know, from that perspective, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question in a moment. But once... If anyone's ever interested in in actually doing this and, and getting to know more about Caribbean racing, I'm absolutely someone that can connect any of you with like the way to do it and how to do it. And all of the islands would welcome everyone with open arms. And we're trying to build a racing community across the different islands. So it would be something we'd be really happy to, to look into and, and to support. So what's it like racing there? Well, you know, firstly, it's hard because it's hot, right? Like you are in seriously tough conditions. And that's, this is one of the reasons my move to Miami is so important for my cycling journey as well, because my, you know, good guys is obviously my primary team and who I love to represent and have supported the growth of the team from, you know, alongside Mike and, and the others for a long time. But yeah, it's like, I, I also race for a national team. So I, I race for Antigua and Barbuda and, you know, we have routes to everything, you know, Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games, World Championships, right? If you get the right qualifi qualifiers, you can get into those big races. So we've had Olympians before, right? Robert Marsh, who still races to this day. He's, I think he's just early fifties right now. The, the guy is hard as hell. Like he's always smiling and he's so strong. He's one of the best, uh, well, he's you know, definitely one of the most strongest Palmares of any um, Caribbean racer to date, right? The guy's been to multiple Olympics. He's been to the Commonwealth Games and he's still, you know, he's on Antiguan soil right now and runs a local bike shop in St. John's. So we've got hard racing, uh, both in Antigua itself and then the countries around there as well. What you find is the races are, you'll usually have smaller teams and it's just so aggressive. And what it took me a while to get used to this, especially in 2019 when I was going out to the Caribbean a lot, obviously before COVID, I was coming from New York and Northeastern racing where you, you get in a breakaway early in the race everyone in that break is willing to work with you and they're there to like get to the finish line first and they'll probably pop off the last 10k or 5k with a few attacks but people want to just get to the finish line and try and race in a, in the caribbean any country that i've been to it's like you get in a breakaway people are playing around with you they're trying to make it hard for you straight away and um you're getting attacked with 80 miles to go. Like I say, you're doing a 90 mile, 100 mile road race. Like you are getting attacked all race from every corner. And it doesn't even make sense sometimes, but what you realize is they know what they're doing and they know how to solo away and they just get the right mix of people in the break. Um, you know, the field might not be motivated for one reason or another. And guys just, they don't want to win in two up or three up sprints. They literally want to solo away. So it really taught me a lot actually, because I was learning from that style I came back a few, you know, after a few different trips to the Caribbean. And firstly, I was getting used to racing in extreme heat, right? Like you might be in a hundred degrees weather with humidity and then you're, you're racing back in New York and, you know, it's 
you're in a breakaway and people aren't attacking you. So you start attacking people. And before you know it, you get your first solo win. Um, and my style of racing totally changed from that because I didn't really know that I was capable of that kind of stuff. Like, you know, being in a breakaway or soloing away and, and I haven't you know done it millions of times. Don't get me wrong. Right. But it's, um, it's just cool to learn the different style and mix it in with the American way of racing. And the two things can make you stronger. Do they have road races like you would imagine in kind of the UCI fashion? Is it more criteriums? I mean, we're talking about places that have limited land masses. So it's not like you can do, I mean, you can do a tour of Antigua and it, it can literally be one stage. I mean, you can go from one side of the island to the other within an hour or two. So, you know, how, how does the race structure kind of work out? So you would think, um, yeah, tiny islands, how do they like actually do long races there, but they just use laps and circuits of different places. So in Antigua specifically, you know, that we have really awesome rolling roads that makes racing again, hard and, the, you know, the road surface isn't perfect, right? You know, we have normal tarmac like you'd imagine, but there's also sort of pat a cake and layer cake tarmac over one bit or another, which if you embrace the hot, like the hard parts of cycling, you know, I, I look up to classics races, right? I like Belgian racing. These are my thing. If I'm on the train or I'm watching races in Belgium, that's just what I'm into. So for me to see like bad road surface, that's not totally smooth and perfect. I'm like, yes, this means we're going to have our legs worn down. And it's going to be a brutal race to, yeah. So we have the the subway three stage, which um, that's about to become a. Well, it has been classified now as a UCI event, so it's a it's a two point two. So it's just, you know the the lowest category of stage racing uh, we now have on island, but it's a professional you know UCI ranked event, which means you can have national teams and you can have Conti teams all coming to Antigua to to compete. And that's going to be in August that we have the the next event of that. So we obviously with COVID, we couldn't do it last time, but that race would be like a prologue TT around uh, 10 miles. And then we'd uh, then have the, ne- the, the next stage the same day, which is a crit. And it's about uh, 90 minutes crit. So it's, you know, four corner, deep, you know, sort of couple of straights, four corner. And, uh, and then we've also got the road race the next day, which is something about 75, 80 miles. And we just do three or four loops of this circuit, which is, you know, rolling hills up and down all over the island. But they, they find a way, a very creative way, because the, the federation is very motivated, the Antiguan, Antigua Barbuda Cycling Federation. Antigua Barbuda is about 17 degrees north of the equator. So it's well within the tropics. I mean, like... The sun is a lot closer to you there than it is in, in New York City, even, you know, even in the dead of summer. What are you looking at as far as temperatures are concerned for a stage race in August? It, Rob, it is absolutely brutal. <laughs> you, it's, uh, but again, it's like, you know, you, you def, I would say if you're coming from somewhere up north in the US, you are at a disadvantage in terms of like, you know, the local boys are going to have the heat acclimatization. So before I would go to race there every time, you know, even if it's in the summer, I, I would sit on the trainer inside and I would do uh, usually like zone one, zone two type of rides. I would wear uh, a, a winter base layer and a woolly hat. Um, and I would just train in a humid environment and make myself sweat. And I would do that for two weeks before the event. Um, I wouldn't really go even into much into tempo, like maybe a few intervals, right. But not really deep into zone three to get myself ready. And, uh, yeah, it's hot. It's just part of it. But then at the same time, right. Like if you're coming from the U S you've got to see it as a combination of, you know, a new environment, a new way to race some new skills, but also you've got beautiful beaches, right? Like you've got amazing restaurants and and really nice, friendly people that would just love cycling. So for me, it's just a really, every time I go there, I just feel happy, right? Because I, it's just a great place. And so you can probably see the smile on my face when I'm thinking about Antigua right now, but yeah, it, I just think of it like Mike came from with me from good guys last time. And uh, yeah, we were just out there, you know, on the, in our swim pool in the afternoon after a race, we then go and get some local food from an awesome beach shack in the, in the evening and then just go and do it all over again the next day and keep racing. As I'm conceptualizing this, as I'm getting ready to join you guys to go do this, the next possible opportunity, are, do you as a British colony drive on the left or the right side of the road? This is critical because I don't want to pull out of the driveway and be like, oh God, I'm on the wrong side now. None of you Americans are coming to drive in Antigua. <laughs> we'll pick you up at the airport on the left side of the road. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. So 
the journey you've made, Antigua to London to the Isle of Man to New York City and now to Miami, why Miami? Why have you decided that the city that never sleeps, that is New York, that is so much everything, was not enough for Connor? That is a good question. It's a good question. I've had to answer this one a lot the last few months. So it's, uh, I've probably got the answers stacked up, but you know, look, uh, New York is, everyone knows what New York is and, and how amazing as a place it is. Um, I, before I even came to the U S which was five years ago, pretty almost to the date. Um, I, my plan all along, but back when I lived in London was how do I get to live somewhere warm in the U S? So I always looked to LA or Miami as really the places I wanted to be. And uh, it, it kind of just happened through like work and different opportunities that New York was the place I was going to go. And I hope no one ever takes this in a bad way, but you know, I saw it as a stepping stone to that one of the other places that I wanted to live. Right, even my first or second year, from a work perspective, I would always be like, "When are we going to go to LA or, or Miami?" I always kind of thought of those places. So the energy of New York is what kept me. You know, I, I thought I would do one or two years there, and it just kept me. It kept me because I had the team. You know, great friends. You know, like uh, back in the day, you know, me and Mike would be the the, the main guys on the team. And we would just train all winter together before we have all the talented guys we've got now. Really, COVID has helped me get here, and I don't mean to to sort of make make too much positive of what is a really bad scenario. But the truth is, right, working from home, uh, my wife and I, we've been in a position to continue doing that, and our companies have given us that freedom. So I just said, look, now is the time I can move into a, a larger living space for less money and um, live in a tropical, subtropical climate that I absolutely love. You know, get better for the Caribbean racing by living here, uh, meet new people, and uh, yeah, just kind of not have to put up with any snow at any moment, right? So I think I've, I've touched the trainer once since November, and that was only to do with some power testing. It wasn't because I actually had to ride it. So to me, it's just like escaping winter and, and all the other things I just listed. COVID obviously has fundamentally changed the way that our society works. I, it can't be understated. For those of us who are in the service part of the, the the economy who don't need to see people, you know, we don't need to go into an office, it has changed it. And I think it's going to change it even more so as people have spent almost a year now out of their offices. I think the last time I went to my office was in March. So, you know, it's basically one year as is. But... With Miami and with some of these smaller places, what is it like smaller places than New York? So basically any other city in the United States. What is that type of racing community like? Because when you sit here as an outsider, not somebody familiar with South Florida, you don't think of Miami and bike racing. You think of Miami and bikinis or Miami and beaches or Miami and you know, tennis, like these are the things that you associate Miami with, but you, if anybody follows you on Instagram or on social media, you are living the bike racing life in Miami. And I don't know how you're doing it because I've never seen any of these roads. So tell us about that society, that community. It shocked me how good the scene is here. I'll be honest with you. So I, I want to preface it by saying the New York scene is absolutely awesome. <laughs> I never want anyone to think I'm saying a bad word about up there because I, I love New York and I'll definitely be back for racing too. Plus what they'll was, fight you if you do. Yeah, they're just, they're hard people. They're going to beat me down, Rob. I've got to be nice about them. <laughs> but no, I'll say it, you know, the scene up there, just to quickly do a comparison, we have so many people that, you know, you would fill hundred person fields in, you know, every category and you'd have four, five bike races a week. So that was the special thing that I think will net like hopefully comes back and, and will always stand true of the New York racing scene. And you're, you know, you're racing places like Central Park and, and others, right? So it's just epic in that sense. What's different down here? It's hot. So you draw in a lot of really high level racers that, you know, want to spend their winter in the same way. Because like there's not really any pro cyclists in New York, at least that, that I've ever met. So you know there's that's kind of saying while there's loads of people, there's also, they might have less people here, but there's a really high standard. And the standard has impressed me, you know, like, you know, the first few weeks of race until this past weekend, I hadn't stepped on a podium. And, you know, in 2019, that was kind of like, 
every other race. So I was like, you know, top two, three, all the time kind of getting on podiums up in New York. So I was like, wow, these guys are his. And when you look at the field, right, I can give you some examples, you know, in the local racing, we've had Travis McCabe, who's just, you know, obviously just left the world tour. And now he, you know, he's down here racing. We've got guys like Michael Hernandez, you know, he, he's what U23 US champion. Travis is the pro crit champion, right? So you've got multiple top pros that are local. You've got other solid teams of racers, guys like Amino Rip. They they pull up with like ten dudes to a race, and they've got some great racers in their team as well that I really respect and have you know enjoyed riding with. So, I think from a racing perspective, because people can train all year round, and also actually also there's so much intensity. I think that's the other part of it. On Key Biscayne, four days a week, there's a you know a group ride called the Don Pan, and I think it has as many as two hundred people. You know, like it's it, in the weekdays, it's shorter. So it might be 20 to 30 minutes long. But on the weekends, you're looking at anywhere from 90 minutes through to like two and a half hours for it's basically a road race. And it's average 28 mile an hour, sometimes even slightly quicker. But 28 mile an hour group ride is pretty fast by any standards. So I just think there's always been a history of, well, not always, but there's been some decent, you know, Miguel Bryan, you know, when he was racing until just last year, he, he was local to Miami. There's a lot of guys that are just kind of top tier US that have either spent time here. They maybe were raised here and come back, um, but there's just a really good culture. And I think they've also absorbed the, the Latin American culture of kind of loving cycling, right? There's a large population of Colombians, Venezuelans, Ecuadorians who all you know, they've got massive inspiration from their own countries at the moment with top tier riders. And so for the racing perspective, like you, you, here's another example, right? So you're on Key Biscayne and it's 7am and there's a professional photographer, a sports photographer taking pictures every single day of the week, right? So you, you'll go and check Instagram afterwards and 305 Pics is putting up pictures of you doing a group ride and it's like what this is crazy and, and at the end of the don pan like i you know i, I don't do that all the time because i don't do intensity every day i'd love to but my coach would, would kind of uh he'd kill me if i was doing it all the time so i'm riding along watching this 200 person peloton go past me and at the finish line because they treat it like a real race there's 50 people watching which to me is blowing my mind because you know while we had an, we do and have had an awesome scene up in New York, you could be at the end of a Central Park race and you'd be lucky to have 10 people watching because one, it's, you know, a lot of the season, the early season is so cold. And two, because right, no one's driving. So you're not going to go and get out of bed, ride a train for 30, 40 minutes to go and watch your husband or wife, like get 15th place or 20th place of 100 people in Central Park. So there's just less of a culture of, or there's more of a culture here of just supporting bike racing and seeing the the passion from kind of every level of person doing it. One thing that you mentioned there that I think is critical is, is this idea of contemporary racing. And by contemporary, I mean, 2020, 2021, Florida, Texas, you know, these are two jurisdictions within the United States that have seemingly allowed bike racing to continue despite the pandemic, despite the numbers, despite the lockdown. I know Georgia with the tour of North Georgia, they had some racing too this summer, but I haven't seen anything come from them since then. And this has been a very, very, very heated discussion that has happened on Twitter or bike Twitter, you know, on Instagram, on social media. And the problem is I think a lot of people have been just yelling at each other and nobody's been talking about it. You've made that conscious decision to ride with other people. You've made the conscious decision to race. And in fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you went up to the Swamp Classic, which is in Gainesville. And for those who don't know Florida geography, Gainesville is not local to Miami. I mean, that is a day-long drive to get to the other end of Florida from South Florida. Why is it that you decided or were willing to put yourself in a position where you were going to race this year? You know, you've done it already. So what is it that made you think that you should do this? Yeah, I... I um. I obviously have... No, I, I'll, I'll speak openly because I, you know, I know that this puts me and uh you know generally you know the florida scene uh, uh, but everyone everyone knows we're racing here and I, yeah i'm 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 fine with that right at the end of the day um i i think there's a balance to how we approach things you know we the i think it's important to support bike racing in general and for me to like 
the racing is on. I'm looking at the world around me and, you know, it's different. If you, I, I understand totally if some, if you're sat in another part of the country that's totally locked down and this is infuriating you, like I get how that feels because we were also in New York and experienced the same thing. Um, you know, w- the environment we're in changes the way you feel about things, right? Like you kind of go into one echo chamber and then out of it and into another one. And so I see nightclubs open. I see the whole world open and you kind of, right, you, I'm thinking, right, I'm riding my bike. So firstly, I'm pursuing my health and my fitness. And for me, riding a bike and racing my bike is not just physical health, it's mental health. It's how I feel good in my day. It's how I feel uh, kind of overall um, this, this feeling of wellness. And racing my bike makes me feel that same way. And I didn't realize it until I was able to race again because it'd been such a long time since we've been able to do it. But, you know, the, the confidence you get back in your daily life, like the spring in your step, right? you know, you're back to racing. Um, but more than anything, right, I think the, we're, we're talking about risks. So if people don't like the sort of riding and racing in Florida thing, it's like, well, that's don't take that risk then, right? You know, if we want to, to take that, that's kind of a personal thing that we can take on. For me, I, I live just with one other person who is also young and, you know, we, we are healthy with no underlying health conditions, or at least that, that we've ever known of. You know, we don't see our parents or we don't have any that live anywhere in this near the state at all. Um, we do the usual stuff that you would hope for, right? Like wear your mask everywhere you go, wash your hands. So you go to the bike race, you get there, everyone's wearing their masks, right? No one's kind of just like jumping on top of each other at the beginning of it. The USA cycling officials... From when I got to, from each week I've got to the race, someone's come straight up to me with their temperature check, with a thermometer, to check, you know, the, the, the scanner one. So they check your temperature. You have to sign in with a mask on. Everyone's wearing them, all the officials. You wear the mask until the minute the race starts. They say, take it off, right? Get your helmets back on, get ready. And then you go. And they say, don't come back here without a mask after the race. Don't come and start celebrating. Put your mask on uh, first. So from what I've seen, I feel like the, you know they've got a good way of, of getting right racing back. If anything, in all honesty, I, I think that we have to. This isn't going anywhere tomorrow, and I, I'm not the per, I'm not seeing myself as a spokesperson for COVID or that. You know, I'm not saying I know more than anybody about it, but at the same time, I'm saying we have to learn to live around it. Maybe go ask kind of people at races how many of them have been tested afterwards and got COVID, you know, is bike racing the, with all the stuff that's happening in America and in the world, it is bike racing the, the reason people are getting COVID. And and I personally just don't think it is. So that's kind of why I've been racing my bike. I don't want to say you anticipated a couple of my questions, but one of the things I wanted to talk about was the safety precautions that are put in place. But before we get there, I think it's, because there are people in this world who deny that COVID exists and deny that it is, it is a problem in the United States specifically and in Florida uniquely, you know, as far as infection rates are concerned. On the day that you raced, so the Saturday and Sunday that you raced with Swamp Classic, the seven-day average in the United States for deaths was about 3,200 people. The seven-day average for Florida was about 177 and I think at, at today's recording, we're about 10% vaccinated as far as having at least one shot in an arm for your population countrywide. So, you know, with those sort of broad-based statistics in mind, what were the safety precautions that you took? What were the ones that were required to be taken? Because top view sports who put on the event, you know, is a for-profit bike racing company, event company. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I do want to know what were they doing from your perspective, as far as making sure people were safe and following the best practices. Yeah. So from, from the perspective of the race, the, the kind of mandatory things were wearing masks up until the, you know, let's say 20 seconds before the race starts, uh, temperature checks on arrival. So, and, and the kind of expectations that you, you know, you share with people, please wash your hands, et cetera, please social distance. Um, you know, the podium not being on, you know, immediately on top kind of a space between and not gathering too much before and after, you know, while I'm saying that it doesn't mean some people, you know, you still, there's scenarios where you might see a friend and, 
you know, you might still go up to them the same way you normally would. And if someone wants to frown upon that, I would say, you know, maybe you've, I don't know, I, I personally still occasionally see my friends, right? Like I still have somewhat of a, of a balance in life, but I'll say from my own perspective, I want to firstly just make sure it's very clear. I'm absolutely not a COVID de- denier. I, I think COVID, I know COVID exists. Like it absolutely exists. I, you know, I, and I think all of us know people in our lives, or I'd like to, I don't, I don't want to think it, but I'm, I'm sure many people in their own lives have been impacted by it in some way. So I, I don't, I think if people are denying it and saying it's not real, that's crazy and a whole different thing for a different, different podcast. Um, but from my own perspective, you know, I traveled there with two teammates who I've been training with, um, and racing with locally, uh, the three of us in a car, um, you know, we tried to minimize stops on the way we did the usual stuff, masks, hand washing, social distance at, you know, we did have to stop. And then we stayed in a, in a small, uh, hotel room, just, you know, just us guys and, it was, you know, the hotel already has everything pretty much closed anyway. They run at such small capacity. So there's basically nobody there. Um, and that was it. Like we just literally went to a, to a shop while wearing masks, bought our food and our snacks for the, for the day or two that we were there. And then we just got on with it. So that, that's kind of the, the crux of what it was. I would say it was not too much different to how things have been further South in Miami. We just kind of kept ourselves to ourselves. Yeah. And I think this is one thing that we need to talk about because it's my biggest problem with this whole racing in America thing has been the mixing of population groups because we are so amazingly hungry for anything that even closely resembles normal life. We're willing to take risks that we might not normally take. We're willing to engage in activities that we might not normally be willing to engage in. So, for example, there was a percentage of the population of the people who came to the Swamp Classic that were not from Florida. You know, you yourself drove several hours to get there. You know, I know that you've raced locally. The Brian Piccolo, I think, is the park. Yes. You know, and a lot there will be people who say, you know, I can if I squint hard enough, I can see local racing and riding being appropriate. But if you start to go outside of your area code, you start to go outside of your time zone or your state, then it becomes a bigger issue. Do you feel that it was okay for people to come from California or Texas who would invariably have to fly to get there for the purposes of an amateur race? Or do you think that the, there should be some sort of geographic limitation on it? I don't want to place any uh, judgment on an adult's decision to kind of where they've gone or, you know, because I, I like there's so many scenarios outside of bike racing as well. I don't, that's a massive, I know it's a deflection from my side, but I, I'm not judging anybody for how they've gone about going to a bike race. Um, you know, I, there's, uh, I think there'd be smart ways for us to get in each region, local racing back up, which I think is the more important part of the, the question. So, you know, if we were to do local racing and get it going in, in safe ways in other parts of the country, that would be smart. And then people wouldn't maybe have to, I think more than anything, if people are doing such journeys, it's a sign that we really, really want to do this thing that we believe in and think, uh, you know, that these more often than not young, healthy people want to get out and do right. So, um, I, again, I don't want to, if, if these things do uh, upset people out there, I think the one most important thing, you know, is to actually have dialogue and to speak about it calmly and not just go, that guy's totally crazy. He's so uh, obnoxious for going to a bike race or he's a super spreader or whatever they want to say, right? That's not what this is about. It's more about talking about the actual overall uh, cycling and, and where it's at right now. Um yeah, I think that if you actually look at who's racing bikes, it's usually young, healthy people. And if you, you know, I know that the, the statistics you mentioned as well, and it's it's horrible and it's terrible that that many people are for, are dying or seriously ill. Um, at the same time, that though some of you know, if you look at in each location, the the types of people that are actually getting more seriously ill, they're more often than not very old with underlying health conditions. And there's a time where, and there's anomalies in all data, right? But at the same time, we should, and I think we should, be looking at how we can get young, healthy people back to some form of normality in their lives, because this 
you know, there's, I mentioned it's wellness, it's health, it's everything else as well. There's people who probably rely on this much more than I do from a mental health perspective, right? And so if you hold people back for such a long time and kind of restrict them for so long, you know, I, I think things like a hard lockdown, you know, throughout the, the time we've had COVID make total sense. I'm a believer in that because it clearly works when my friends and family in the UK have had to go through it or in Antigua, the rates have gone down. So I think the way we've approached it from a political standpoint has been ridiculous. Uh, we're here where we are now. And, you know, a lot of people don't see much changing. So if it's that they want to race their bike and they've had no problems with doing so and they don't live with someone who's vulnerable or older, there's, there might be very little risk to that person doing that, in all honesty. Do you, there was an article that was brought to my attention by Eric Hill of Project Echelon, friend of the podcast, of from the New York Times about how we can't stop life, that we need to engage in, in healthy activities, we need to engage in social things because we're social creatures, humans are. We can't separate ourselves from our biology. I'm just wondering, having done it now, having raced your bike now multiple times, how do you feel as compared to the way that you were feeling beforehand? So like draw yourself back to the October, September version of Connor who hadn't raced and look at yourself now, now that you've got Elliot and Cormac who've come from New York City down to spend time with you and, you know, you guys have training partners and you're getting out there and you're being social with other people. Emotionally, how are you feeling now? Well, I, I'm in a different place, really, because I'm physically in a different place. So I feel I've got to say, like, you know, I'm, I'm happy in general. Like, I don't know if I could place it on one through another. But the overall is, you know, if you move to a new place and you start a life and build you know, that you generally will be in a honeymoon phase for a, a long period of time. So I think I'm happy because I'm enjoying a sunny winter for the first time in my life. And I'm really embracing that. Um, I'm meeting new people and, and kind of expanding my my network and my social circles and so on. And I'm not talking about mass gatherings. When I say that I'm talking sort of more figuratively about the, the way life grows. So yeah, I feel happy in that sense. And I, and I, for me, I, I do feel, I feel really happy that bike racing is back. And if, you know, again, I refer to kind of, if anyone is feeling a different type of way about that, you know, I'm sure that most of the places that aren't racing bikes, if bait racing was on and people weren't going to scorn them on social media, I'm sure that most people would love to get out and race their bikes. They, and there's people who've done it on an underground way, you know, large high level bike races in this country have done that. So I just think, I'm speaking about it openly to share how it is from my perspective. Um, and I feel happy that we're racing bikes. I like to see some of the other high level racers who are super fit and strong that I'm able to learn from out here. Um, and again, I, you know, I, I'm not saying it's, it's not possible because COVID exists, but I haven't been seeing these people that I've been racing bikes with young, healthy people coming, you know, Oh mate, got, you know, I'm sick at the moment or, you know, this has happened or I'm not going to be there this week. And, and for me, in my own personal scenario, I've, I've, in my building, there's, there's COVID testing, there's antibody tests, and there's, um, there's the, uh, the, the other word I'm, I've slipped my mind, but I could have a, a test to prove I have COVID now or I've had COVID before uh, in my own building. So, you know, if that happens to be the case, I'll, I'll go and get that. I'll, I'll get it when I return from trips, when I go further than, than local and things like that. So I'm keeping on top of it. I think that's the way the way we could all get back to bike racing is the, the, the usual stuff. It's the, it's masks, it's uh, uh, temperature checks. It's also, if we had increased testing across the U S and it was normal, if you could buy a test in Dwayne Reed or CVS, right? All of us could get a rapid test today or tomorrow morning before the 15 minutes before the event, that would be ideal. That, that's, we should be looking more at how we do that stuff and get like actually people racing in a safe way and less abusing people for trying and promoters for trying. Cause I think that's what happened a lot in 2020. Has anybody come after you on, on social media or personally saying that you've made bad choices and they've lost respect for you? Um, I, so actually no, as of today, um, there may, after you know, talking to you about this and there may be more discussion around it, maybe there's going to be people and, and I, and I just hope they can hear my voice. I, I, if you have a negative opinion on me, you know, that's totally your decision. And so I don't really care to read about it on social media. Um, but no, no one has actually this time. I feel it was, I know it's ridiculous, but this is what I've felt from the last few weeks and months. 
something about it being 2021, everyone was so sick of 2020. And in 2020, if you even thought about talking about bike racing, you're a bad person, according to most people out there. That's how I felt. You know, it was bad to go on a group ride. You know, we, you know, I, I was on the back end along with my team of, you know, oh, you rode uh, your bike together. That's, you're the worst. You're, you're the super spreaders. And um, we kind of just, essentially, we, we, had a, we took our own risk and measured it and continued to move forward in a way that we saw safe. Um, and eventually, I think if you ignore the negativity, it dies down. There's only so long you can bark and shout at somebody. And if they're not listening, they're not listening. Um, and that, to, you know, this year in 2021, I felt that actually more than ever, people were super supportive of it. And it seemed, even though the numbers weren't going in the, a better direction than 2020, it seemed everyone was ready for this renewed, fresh energy to be like, okay, bike racing's back. Then I guess bike racing is back. You know, so that that's the, the kind of way it's felt from where I'm saying. Do you think that there will be top level bike races? By top level, I mean national level USA crits type races throughout the course of this year. You know, do you see that happening this year? This last few days, I've started to think differently. If you asked me that two weeks ago, I would have I would have been an undeniable yes. I would have just thought, yeah. You know, that's, that's, it's, things are getting better. Like they're going to get better you know, vaccine. We're going to be able to travel. Um, and then actually it hit me. I was like, we're in mid February and, uh, it's going to be March in no time at all. And, uh, we're not really heading in a great direction with vaccines. Not much has really changed in the actual data from 2020, apart from it's got worse in most cases. So, and then we've got, you know, faster spreading strains and things like that. So I'm thinking now, the chances of people from all across the country flying to one small town in the, in the middle of America, probably not as great as I thought, maybe in the June and July timeframe, but there's a, yeah, there's only one tentative USA crits race in June. So hopefully may, maybe that we're going to get some kind of, again, even more compressed schedule of August through to November or something like that. Um, the original reason I felt so confident was because, again, I was in an echo chamber where I was looking around. And I was thinking, well, yeah, bike racing's back already. Like, we're doing it. We're racing our bikes down here. So why can't everybody else race the bikes? And and that's the, the sort of thing I mentioned where when you're sat in the middle of something where the whole world is open and doesn't mean you're going out being crazy, you might still be keeping yourself to yourself. But when you're seeing a city that's open and a state that's open um, and and I want to say, I'll try and put this across in a way that I don't, again, none of this is meant to sound like I'm saying it's the right or the wrong thing. It's more just sharing experiences. But when I was in a more lockdown area, which probably was for the right reason, I will say, I, I remember looking outside and thinking like, like, that's crazy. Surely everyone's going to die. Like if they go outside, that's ridiculous. They're all going to have COVID and just die. And then you're here and you're like, why isn't everyone constant? Like if you can imagine like, everyone suddenly go into a huge event. To me, based on my previous thoughts, it was like every single person there is just going to have COVID and then they're going to die. It's going to be the worst thing ever, right? But then when you realize they are open and so the numbers aren't great at all, but are they like, they're not exponentially worse in, in, in a lot of cases in a lockdown place versus a non-lockdown place. And that's where you start to have this kind of the battle of ideas, right? Or what, which one is better or worse. Um, so, you know, the way I see it, I'd like to think racing is going to come back at full scale. It might, it might be a, a sort of a, a, a smaller way of doing it. I think it should come back. I am a, I told you, I, I believe it should come back. And there's a way that young, healthy, fit people should be able to go outside and do their sport in an outdoor environment, moving at what, 25 to 40 mile an hour. I think that should be something we can do with precautions and safety measures in place. And we should be looking at how to do it. Let's say that you're right. Let's say that I'm right. And those people who are optimistic by nature are correct and that we can get back to it you know, June, July, August, we have this insane calendar that, that ends up with Winston-Salem at the end of the year. Now we've announced that the Europeans and the people from, from England are going to be coming to the United States to race crits at that final in Winston-Salem. What event or events are you the most excited about? Because you are basically virgin territory when it comes down to middle America crit racing. You've never done it. You've never gone to these events. So seeing it through your eyes 
as somebody sitting here in February, March, I'm really super curious. What is it that you're the most excited about? It's uh, it's all unbelievably exciting. When I, you know, we've all got the in this day and age, you've got the ability to watch these races on YouTube. And I remember, you know, I, I remember watching some of these big big races on you know live in the past. Like you know, even in even in 2019, when I kind of like. I had the vision with our team, with Mike and, and a few others in our team. I was like, we could do that, right? We could do USA crits. And it was a bit like, you're crazy. Like, come on, <laughs> there's no way you can do that. Uh, and I just remember being like, let's just push it harder and like, see if we can get there and let's try and get a spot in D1 and let's just take on some big hitting guys and see if we can level up through doing it. Um, and, you know, I, I remember meeting guys like Justin Williams when I was a cat three at Harlem. Like he, he won't even remember me from then, right? Like he won't even like know me now. It's funny. Like, but back then at Harlem, I was like, this, these people are gods. Like these, I'm a cat three, they're pros. And a cat one to me was just like these top national level cat ones were so amazing. And kind of, it's, it's just as you grow in the sport and you realize like, okay, most people are human. There are some superhumans out there, guys you just can't understand how to beat. But it just gets exciting, the idea of getting to race with an entire field that is all, they've got the the ticket to entry, right? They're so fit and strong and they're skillful and they're all at the same race. And, I, and I, I've seen myself being able to be at that kind of event and wanting to be there. Um, and we've done some, you know, Bucks County in, uh, in Pennsylvania, right. Awesome pro road tour event and raced against some of the top guys there. Um, so I, I've got the feel for the speed and the way it works and I'm just buzzing to get there, but to, to be, to, to answer which one I'm looking forward to the most, the, the hype people do talk up Tulsa as being the, the top one. And I've loved seeing, um, even things like the butcher box, uh, documentary about like what that was like. Uh, taking it all in, the people drinking beers by the side and Crybaby Hill and spraying you. It's just like middle of summer as well. That That is um, three races back to back. That That's the one that gets me going the most. Um, I also love, because, you know, the, the connection to the UK, seeing that uh, one or more British teams will be coming out to, to race because they've got an amazing, to, uh, you know, racing crit and road racing scene over there, which is pretty much all Conti level guys, um, you know, training, racing full time. So I definitely want to race against those guys and, and Winston-Salem looks like an awesome place to do it. So it's probably those two for me. Well, Connor, we are going to be following you for the rest of this year for sure. And I personally will see you at Tulsa. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the show. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. As an epilogue to this interview, I wanted to put things into context conceptualize things, put them into a timeline. Connor and I spoke on February 16th. It's only a couple weeks ago, but a lot has happened since then. And frankly, some things haven't happened since then. One thing that has continued to happen is Connor's continued to race. He raced the Chain of Lakes road race in Florida, which was a 90 plus mile road race in which he finished fourth which is quite an accomplishment given the fact that the competition he faced included a full butcher box team. The numbers that were used in the course of the interview to talk about cases are from the Washington Post. Those numbers are seven-day averages, meaning that it is a daily report of numbers for a seven-day period of time. It's kind of like the same way that we use a three-second average or 10-second average on our power meters to make sure that we smooth the data so that we can use that data. It doesn't have anything that goes like haywire if there's some sort of statistical anomaly over a one-day period of time or one-second period of time in the course of power numbers. So I used those numbers from the Swamp Classic, which was February 6th and 7th. Obviously, that is one month ago. And since that period of time, we've had a lot of accomplishments with regard to the overall U.S. picture and the decline in numbers. 
as of today's date, the day before this episode is to air, so Tuesday, March 2nd, the total seven-day death numbers in the country has gone down from 3,200 to 2,000, which is a, a huge accomplishment and something we should all be applauded for, that we're continuing to do the things that we need to do in order to bring the coronavirus pandemic within some sort of appropriate or reasonable limits. It's hard to even talk about these things in, in terms like that. However, Florida has not seen as dramatic a decrease as some other parts of the country. So in early February, those numbers were at 177 deaths per day. Florida's decreased to 135, and it showed a slight uptick over the last couple of days. Of course, these could be statistical anomalies. You don't know. The report that I'm viewing here from the Washington Post no longer has the percentage of population that's completed one vaccination. It only now has a total completed vaccination. So we can't use the same 10% number that I did back in, in my interview with Connor. At the present time, we are looking at about 7.9% of the total U.S. population that's been vaccinated. We are vaccinating over a million people a day. And we are well on pace to reach the president's goal of 100 million vaccinations within the first 100 days. But that's not to say that that vaccination rate is equal among all the states and all the jurisdictions. It's just to stay state statistically, we've doubled the number of total completed vaccinations from the time that I spoke with Connor two weeks ago and the time that this episode is being released. Before I face criticism and before I face any sort of calls for being holier than thou, I need to admit that over the last week, I left Washington, D.C. I actually went on a trip, the first trip that I've gone on since July. I went to South Carolina to visit family, and I brought my bike, and I did do some riding. So is that the best decision that I could make? I don't know. And that's kind of where we all are. Did I make the best decisions possible in order to minimize or limit the amount of exposure that I had? Did I follow the best practices that I could within the confine of the CDC? I think I did. I think that within the confines of, of the steps that I took, I wore masks everywhere. I stayed in an Airbnb by myself. It was a standalone Airbnb, so it's like not a condo or an apartment building. It was just my wife and I, so by myself means the two of us. We took all of our meals, either uh, carry out or made them at home. We limited exposure to people as much as possible while enjoying the nice weather. And I rode by myself, with the exception for 45 seconds in which it took me to overtake somebody at the top of Caesar's Head. Those miles were all solo miles. So if you look at what I do on a daily basis here in Washington, D.C. versus what I did in South Carolina, it's pretty much identical. The only difference was 30 degrees in temperature and sunlight. This is not a simple debate. As much as we want to reduce this conversation to yes, no, black, white, we can't. We can't because real life gets in the way and real factors get in the way. Before I left, I was sadly depressed. I was very unmotivated. I was a very unpleasant person to be around. And the mental and emotional recharge that I went through while I was down in South Carolina, while I was riding in warmer weather, while I was seeing a change of venue and seeing family was dramatic. From that perspective, it was totally worth it. My motivation is back. My happiness is back. And I'm very happy with the decision that I made. But I know that there's a risk. I know that anytime I leave my house, there's a risk. And so all this being said, I want us to have a conversation. Us, all the listeners of this show, all the people who value American bike racing and value Criterium Racing, about what we are going to do this year and about where this year and the years to come are going to take us. And that's why 
it was so important for me to get Connor's voice out there and to do it in a way that allowed him to talk, not to follow up, not to nitpick, not to point out inconsistencies, but allowed him to express his thought process. The problem is, is that oftentimes we yell at each other and we don't let each other think and we force ourselves to live within the echo chambers that he talks about. And that might not be the best thing for us. And thanks for working through with us during this uh, little break that I took over the last month. It ended up being a slightly bit longer than I thought it was going to be, but we were able to put together some incredible content for the coming weeks. So, for example, next week, Lily Williams joins me to talk about the Women's Cyclist Alliance survey that came out back in the fall and the issues that kind of spiral out from there about women's pay and cycling, women's representation, trade unions, things like that that are super critical. We've got a couple other topics coming up that are serious and thought-provoking, but then We've got some that are whimsical or hopefully just a little bit more funny, like an episode featuring Michael Bodekheimer and little guy Matt Allen, where we talk about food and bike racing. And you get all of Bodie's hot takes about pizza, and you'll be able to agree or disagree with those firsthand. As always, check out the website, criteriumnation.com. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Criterium Nation. Join us here again next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation. Mm-hmm.